All right, go ahead and grab your Bibles uh, if you have them. Normally we turn to one place and we kind of work through one text. Today's a bit different. I'd like you to turn to a couple of places. If you could turn to Philippians uh, chapter 2 and also the Gospel of John chapter 1 and just kind of hold a marker in both of those. We're going to be unpacking a little bit differently today. But Philippians 2 and John 1, while you're finding them, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your body. Thank you for the family, God, that we've been made a part of through Jesus. Lord, it's hard. It's impossible to express, God, the the gratitude and and the glory that you deserve, God, for what you've done for us. Thank you. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, God, it's with weakness and dependency, and I feel completely inadequate. God, to express um, what you laid on my heart through your word this week. So I just ask for your help. I ask, as we heard in the psalm today, and also how Psalm 51 says, God, would you uphold us, uphold me with a willing spirit, God, and would you speak to us today? Just, would you just empower us, fill us with your spirit, God, and let us be changed in light of, in light of what you want to say I pray for those here, Lord, who don't know you. Would you draw them to yourself? Would you call them? Would you save them? And I pray for those who do, God, would you, just, would you help us repent? Would you convict us of sin and, and turn our eyes back on you where they need to be? Father, would you help us in this time? We need you. This is in your name. Amen. Now, before we get started, I, I want to kind of let you know what's motivating us to take a week out uh, after we finish Romans chapter 11 and before we get into our Easter series and do something a little bit different. There's, there's two things primarily uh, that are motivating us to do this. One, we've just come through Romans 9 to 11, which is a heavy kind of time, right? It's been a, it's been a great time through those chapters. Um, we've, been, we've been following Paul's thought process as he kind of works through God's covenant that he's initiated and ratified with his people, both Jew and Gentile. We've learned a lot about God in that. It's been a really, really fruitful time and very important work. But one of the dangers for us as we walk through a section of scripture like that is that we can make the mistake of feeling like God, God is somehow reduced to a, a distant orchestrator of events in the world. Or that he's kind of unfolding his plan, we're all a part of it, you know, but, but he's just kind of doing it. He's kind of removed from our lives that he deals with humanity in a cold, calculated, almost mathematical way. That, that he's a bit unfeeling, he's disconnected from our lives because at the end of the day, his plan will be worked out no matter what we do. So that's one of the dangers. We can find ourselves asking the question, where's the love? Where's the father heart of God? Where's the care and the compassion that we know God has for us as his sons and daughters and for the lost? Where's that? So the first thing that's motivating me this morning is the desire to make sure we're reminded that everything we've seen up to this point over the last several months Everything, the entire covenant and plan of God that we've been looking at is only made possible because the heart and love of God towards humanity. It's the only reason why any of it exists. He's not cold or unfeeling. He's passionate about what he's doing and I want us to see that. The second thing, second motivating factor for this week is that next week we're going to be picking up our Easter series, which we're really, really excited about. Um, It's called The Last Days of Jesus. We're going to be following him as he walks toward the cross. So I want to set the stage for that. I want to give us a little bit of the context um, before we come to the crucifixion and subsequent resurrection. 
Because the, because the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it can't be fully understood outside of the, the love that motivated him to come for us in the first place. So those are the two things. It was those two things that kind of got my mind spinning, got my mind turning this week as I sat down and, and kind of gave myself to the work of thinking about God's love for humanity and in turn our intrinsic need for love as people. Now, as soon as I say that, I just want to let you know I feel uncomfortable. Right off the bat, I feel even using the word love kind of makes me feel a little bit queasy. I realize in the Bible a lot, especially in 1 John, if you don't like the word love, don't read 1 John. But it just makes me feel a bit uncomfortable because the word is so airy. It's just, it's so ethereal. It's so overused and misinterpreted and misunderstood. And as I kind of dove into looking at it this week, God's love for us and humanity's need for love, I realized there's no way we can even use the word love in a room like this and have us, have any of us anywhere near the same page. Love means so many different things to so many different people. For example, some people... I won't say mainly guys, but that might be true, mainly guys, hear the word love and they think sex, right? We hear love and we think making love. That's what comes, we, we think of the intimacy and the relationship and the vulnerability and the pleasure that comes along with that kind of connection. Right? That, that's what love means. Maybe that's why I feel uncomfortable even using the word, but, that, but that's what it means. And that's not necessarily all bad. But we definitely see the perversion of that kind of understanding of love in things like sexual addiction or affairs or pornography. Other people, they hear the word love and for them immediately they think relationship. Romance comes to mind as does friendship. Knowing each other is the key to love in their minds and it's almost entirely emotional. Sex can be a part of that but it's one part of, of kind of many and this is where we get our chick flicks, our love songs that make us want to cringe. It's why we have all manners of heart-shaped uh, paraphernalia scattered throughout our lives, like cards and candy and chocolate. You know, it's not really the shape of a heart. I don't know if you've noticed that. A heart's really ugly, and these things are really symmetrical. It's very strange, but anyways, it's where we get that from. Now, that particular category of love may sound much less harmless than the first, much more harm, much, much less harmful than the first, but we can't make that mistake. See, there's a dark side here as well. Many who are addicted to this kind of emotional love find themselves desperately hooked on the pursuit of romance. These are people that they're always in a relationship. They can't not be in one. Right, this is where we get emotional affairs from that, that begin with seemingly innocent shoulders to cry on and listening ears. Right, this is where we find people in abusive relationships that will destroy them, but who are incapable of disconnecting themselves from that source of, of, of romance or, or friendship or intimacy or whatever's there. But whatever you think about when you hear the word love, whatever comes to your mind, one thing's for sure, people are hardwired for it. People are starving for it addicted to it, obsessed with it, volumes have been written on it and about our need and our desire for it. Songs, paintings, poetry, poetry books, we live in a world that can't get enough of it. 
We can't stop thinking about it. It's everywhere we look. We use it to sell everything. There was a spaghetti commercial on TV not long ago and they were using sex to sell it, which I thought was really interesting. Right? We use it to sell everything, cars, cruises, and everything else you could imagine. We're a people addicted to it. And in the words of the great country singer Johnny Lee, we are looking for love in all the wrong places. We are. And into this broken world, full of people looking for love in ways that will ultimately destroy them, enters the Christian evangelist with one of the most frustrating Christian cliches of all time. God loves you. God loves you. You can find this innocuous phrase in the most random places. You'll be driving on the highway, you'll see it on a billboard. You'll find it carved into the walls of bathroom stalls. You'll get it on little paper tracks. You'll definitely hear it out of the mouths of preachers. God loves you. Now, I'm not frustrated because it's because, by this because it's not true. It's definitely true according to the Bible. What annoys me about this phrase is that it's thrown out there. It's thrown into our world as if people will know what to do with it. As if they'll know what that means. As if they have any context for what it means that God loves you. God loves me. Great. You know nothing about my life. How can you possibly say that? And what do you mean by love? And in what context do you think he loves me? I mean, love is a word so full of meaning that this phrase has become meaningless. But I want us to slow down over this a little bit today because here's the truth. If what the Bible says is true, if it's not merely myth, but historical reality, if that's true, if God is the creator of all that exists, including you, and if you've been designed for a relationship with him, then whether or not he loves you is the answer to the question of whether or not you are by nature were created to be a slave or free. This tells us everything about you, everything about me. It's important. God loves you. So I want us to slow down over this. This is a really big deal. It's the key to our identity. It's the key to who we are. And it's the question I want us to ask this morning. How can we actually know that God loves us? How can we know? So, so listen, what, what I'm asking for from you today, I want to be really upfront. I want you involved in what we're doing here. What I'm asking for you is to sit back and I want you to listen and consider God's love. I just want you to consider what the Bible says about God's love for you. I, I've become really burdened over this past week for, for you and also for myself, for us to know what it means that God loves us. And I know that we all come in here in different places. We've all come from our busy lives. Some of us got bad news this week. We're in pain. We're reeling. We're stressed out. We're anxious beyond belief. Listen, you need to know that there is a love that transcends your circumstance, all circumstance. Others here, you're, you're here, but you're not really here. You're somewhere else. You're apathetic. You're just, your temptation is just not to tune me completely out. 
You need to see that whatever it is that has your life, whatever it is that has your mind, it's completely meaningless without the love of God. Completely meaningless. So think about this for a minute. Some here, sons and daughters of God, you're Christians, you're faith in Jesus. You need the love of God to change you, as do I this week. And if you're here, you're not yet a Christian, you need to see it for the first time and turn to Jesus. So that's why we're doing this. So how do we know that God loves us? Now, I asked you to hold your, a marker in Philippians 2 and John 1. Let me read Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8 for us, um, where Paul, speaking of the unity and love that's to govern our lives as Christians, writes of the incarnation of Jesus by saying this. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Apostle John, also speaking of Jesus' incarnation, writes in John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then please drop down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. The word. Jesus. God himself becoming flesh is what's known as the incarnation. God adding humanity to his divinity. Our text last week, if you remember, Romans 11 verse 36, that's how it ended. We're speaking of Jesus. We're told that from him and through him and to him are all things. This is saying that Jesus is the centerpiece of the entire universe. This is saying that everything was created through Jesus and everything continues to exist for Jesus. He's the beginning and the end, the second person of the triune God, like a son in relation to the Father, but not sons like we have, a pre-existent son, equal to the Father and to the Holy Spirit, that he, Jesus, emptied himself, Philippians tell us. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant, and the divine eternal word became flesh and dwelt among his own creation. This is the miracle of the incarnation, and this is our answer. Right? This is the greatest manifestation of God's love for humanity to have ever been enacted. This is how we know the truth of the word God's, God loves you. Why do I say that? Well, because that's what Scripture says. 1 John 4, 9 says, In this, the love of God was made manifest. It was shown to us. Among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
or, or probably the best known, most, most memorized passage in all scripture, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The incarnation of Jesus is how we know God loves us. But we need to go further. I, I mean, exactly what is it about the enfleshment of the divine word that reveals God's love to us? I mean, what is it exactly? What do we see in the incarnation that shows us how God feels about us and how he relates to us? Now, now there are so many ways we could answer that question. Uh, the incarnation, we're, we're definitely not going to deal with this in, in its fullness, this topic at all, or come anywhere near it. I want to give you two things. Two ways that we see God's love for humanity through the incarnation together, and then we'll respond. The first way. The first way that Jesus' incarnation demonstrates God's love for us can be seen by going back to our passage in Philippians. Philippians 2, 5 to 7. Let me read it again. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Now I want you to see that last line. Just zoom in on it. Being born in the likeness of men. See, here's the thing about the human need and desire for love. Here's the thing about us as people. See, we tend to not take love very seriously until somebody is willing to leave some or much of their own life behind in order to enter into ours. Now, I know that sounds kind of abstract. Let me try to explain what I mean. See, there's, there's all kinds of people today. Our city's full of them. People who claim they love each other that they're, they're in loving relationships, but who, who are unwilling to really enter each other's lives. We, we see this all the time. Every time someone accuses the person who's supposed to love them, that they're afraid of commitment, right? Because they won't take the relationship to the next level. We're seeing this, right? We're seeing that someone is fighting to hang on to life as they know it rather than adapt it to another person. That's what we're seeing. This is why so many relationships are built on the principle of minimizing sacrifice. As long as you do what I want you to do, we're good, right? As long as you look good, especially around my friends, and make me look good in turn, we're going to be good. As long as you don't get too soggy right around this section, we're going to be okay. As long as you keep, you know, paying for our dates and your bank account stays full, I'm going to be around. And as long as you don't have too many emotional issues, really, I, I'm, I wanna, I'm, I'm, here, I'm here for fun. I just want to have a good time. You know, as long as there isn't too much baggage and you're not too clingy, I'm going to be here for you. We see these relationships all the time. These relationships are conditional commitments based on your ability to do what I want you to do. Often, as, as you get further down the road, you realize that what people really want is, is, is to be in love with themselves. They, they want to turn you into me. I want you to be just like me, which is, which is wrong. It's perversion. This isn't love. This is a game that we play, but it's not love. It's the illusion of love, and these unspoken contracts are the opportunities we give each other to try and earn our affection. And this manipulation of love is everywhere in our society. This, by the way, 
is also, is also the, the heart behind all religion. This is the heart behind any system that says, I'll love you if you'll do these things. And this is exactly the perception that our culture has of the Christian God. When, you're, when your friends and the people in your school and your coworkers, when they hear that you go to church, this is what they think. Oh, you're going to go fake morality around a group of people so that God will love you. Okay, great. See, somehow the message has got out that what the God of the Bible is after is morally upstanding, well-mannered men and women. Somehow people have got that message. That's what they think of Christians. And we have to be honest, the way that they've got that message is from our lives. It's from the lives of, of people who call themselves Christians and who walk around haughty and flaunting the fact that somehow they've managed to earn God's favor by keeping a certain moral standard, by their own goodness. I mean, it's, it's an illusion. It's, they, they pretend they're part of some imaginary club. And I say imaginary because it's exactly imaginary. These people know, they don't know the gospel at all. This is not the gospel. And just so we're clear, our culture sees right through it. They see the hypocrisy immediately and there's a visceral reaction to it. If you're telling me that God exists and that some people have his favor and some people don't based on what they've done, I wouldn't even want to worship a God like that anyways. And let's be honest for a moment. If you have one authentic bone in your body, you know you wouldn't want to worship a God either who would pardon you based on the life that you've lived. We don't want that God. Deep down, all of us know we want more than this. We're still after love. And this is why the word becoming flesh, the divine eternal word becoming flesh is so important for us to grasp. God himself, born in the likeness of men. See, this was so much more than just a physical demonstration by God. This was God refusing to keep himself at a distance from us. This is our creator, the same one that each one of us has rejected, reaching into our lives and making his home there. This, this was the ultimate act of sacrificial love. This is God telling all of us that we are the object of his desire and that he has an unconditional love to offer us, one that is freely offered through no righteousness, no work, no earning on our part whatsoever. It's a one-sided transaction. This is the pinnacle of the love that the human heart desires. Jesus became one of us. He became human. Jesus took human weakness on himself. Theologians have a word for the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man. They call it the hypostatic union, which just means that he had both natures in their entirety and neither one of them, divinity and humanity, neither one of them were diluted by the other. Fully God, fully man. In the incarnation, God made himself part of human history. That's amazing. That's mind-boggling. God was born into humankind as a baby. He had a childhood just like you did. He grew up and he learned. He grew. He ate. He slept. He felt the effects of the brokenness of this world just like every one of us has. You know, oftentimes it's the simple things in Jesus' humanity that are the most shocking 
He loved you so much that he became just like you so that he could rescue you. Now let's consider his humanity for just a minute. The fact that Jesus experienced universal human feelings. See, John 4 tells, tells us of a time when Jesus was exhausted physically from his journey. And he literally sat down beside a well to try and, to try and recover. John 19 tells of a time when Jesus, Jesus was physically thirsty Matthew 4 tells us of a time when Jesus was so desperately hungry so for food, so weak and physically fatigued that he actually could not recover himself. Matthew 26 tells us of a time in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus' human soul was sorrowful to the point of death. Have you ever felt angst, depression, so much turmoil that you literally thought you were going to die? Jesus did. In fact, Luke 22 tells us that the stress upon Jesus' human frame was so great that the capillaries in his sweat glands ruptured, causing him to sweat blood. Luke 23 tells us that Jesus, after being flogged and tortured, actually collapsed under the weight of the wooden beams of the cross and could carry it no longer. Please hear this. Omnipotent God literally needed a man to come alongside him and help him carry the cross. Omnipotent God couldn't even carry his own cross. Ultimately, we see that Jesus took human weakness on himself when his life went out from him after being murdered. He experienced physical death, the enemy of our humanity, and this is what our hearts long for. This is what we want. An unconditional love that pursues us. Someone to sacrifice for us in order to sit with us in our pain and our distress. We don't want a God who would just send us a card. Who would just send us a list of rules and say, keep these things, you're going to be okay. Keep these rules and, and you'll earn my favor. No, what we want more than anything is a love so strong that it comes after us. It chases us down. You know, one of the most prominent objections to, to the God of the Bible, the Christian God, one of those prominent objections in our culture is evil and suffering and pain that exists in the world. Right? People say, you know, if God's all-powerful, if he's omniscient, he knows everything, and if he's omnibenevolent, if he's good, then there's no place for evil or suffering in the world. It can't exist. Either your God doesn't exist or your God's evil. Because if these things exist and he doesn't do anything about it, then he's not a good God. But let me ask you something. What should we say about a God who enters into that evil and that suffering with his creation? A God who doesn't keep his distance from the most extreme suffering on the planet, but who wades through every ounce of it and more. Now, we don't have all the reasons for the evil that exists, that's for sure. And, and, and I want to apologize to anybody who's ever had the trite kind of answers that get given you when you've experienced, that people give you when you experience tragedy. We don't have all the answers. But what we do know is that God has entered into our suffering with us. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. 
He loves you and the humanity of Jesus is evidence of that love. Please hear me. You, you are the object of God's love. So the first aspect of the incarnation that reveals God's love for us is the fact that Jesus took human weakness on himself in all that that entails. The second way that we see God's love for us in the incarnation of Jesus is found throughout scripture but explicitly in places like Romans 3.25 where speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, God put him, Jesus, forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Or Hebrews 2.17, which says, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers. That's us and that's amazing. Had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Or 1 John 2, 2, which says he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Or 1 John 4, 10, which says in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now you probably noticed one word that kept repeating itself. It's not a word that we tend to use very often. It's the word propitiation. It's a really, really important word. In fact, it's so important that the existence of every man, woman, and child who's ever existed, it's contingent upon it. See, the word propitiation literally means wrath-bearing sacrifice. Now, it points out the reality that, that on the cross, Jesus was two things. He was a representative of humanity, and he was a substitute for all those who'd come to place their faith in him, a representative and a substitute. See, Jesus didn't just die a physical death on the cross. He didn't just experience the death that mankind would experience. No, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus bore the just penalty of God against every act of rebellion against him. Jesus wasn't sweating blood the night before his death because he was scared of the physical pain of the cross. As has been said before, countless numbers of Jesus' disciples went to the very same cross as him. After him. And they went singing. Jesus didn't sweat blood because he was scared of the pain. Jesus' soul wasn't sorrowful to death because he was scared of what man could do to him. The very thing he had commanded us not to be scared of. No, the cup that Jesus asked the Father to let pass from him was the cup of God's wrath which burns against evil. Jesus didn't just come and experience the pain we've all felt from living in a broken world world. No, Jesus came and bore the penalty for that evil existing in the world in the first place. Something you and I, if you're in Jesus, will never have to experience. More than we could ever imagine. He paid the price for every act of rebellion that we've committed against God. And I want us to see two things in that. First, as a representative of the human race, Jesus came to know us. To know us from the inside out. I, I know of nothing more powerful than of knowing and of being loved at the same time. Nothing. You know, when I got married, we, you know, it was like anybody else who gets married. We thought we knew each other really well, Melissa and I. Turns out not so much. 
uh, and about a year and a bit into our marriage, some of you know our stories, this, this piece of it anyways, but you know, a year and a bit in, I was very sick, so um, I'd been sick for a dozen, or a bunch of years before that, but you know, she was helping me in and out of the shower and helping change me and things like that as I would go off to work and I'd come home, eat, throw up and go to bed and stay up all night and then just do it over again. So I eventually collapsed, wound up in the hospital where they said, you know, you would have had about a week left to live had you not collapsed. So I was in rough shape. It took about a year, a year and a few months of recovery after that, surgeries and all that kind of stuff to get me back on my feet. But in that time, as a newlywed guy, first year of marriage, I was extremely vulnerable and I was known in a way I hadn't been known before by another person. To be known as much as a person can know another person and to be loved, most powerful thing that I think we can experience. This is why it doesn't mean anything to you if someone comes to you and says, I love you, and you know they don't really know you. It doesn't mean anything, right? That person has no idea who you are, what you're about. And this happens a lot because the truth is we're really good at hiding ourselves. We're really good at putting up a front and not letting people really get to know us. We're, we're, we're pretty... We're pretty um, we're pretty skilled at controlling the image that we let out of ourselves. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important that Jesus became a representative of the human race. He came to know us. Not just objectively as God looking down, examining the human heart, but experientially, literally from the inside out. The second person of the Trinity took a human nature on himself for all eternity. Jesus is still today a man. Today. Ruling and reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Waiting to come back for his bride. He is a man. Which is why he can be the only mediator between God and man because he is both. He knows us. He knows us because he's one of us. Listen, Jesus knows every secret you have. He does. Every secret. He knows every impulse. He knows every dark thought. He knows everything there is to know about you and about every one of us. He's walked in our shoes. Which is why we have texts like John 2, 23, which says, Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows us completely. He knows every secret, every impulse, everything there is to know. He knows everything that there is to know about humankind, which means Jesus also knows every single one of your temptations. He knows every single point of your weakness. When you think you're alone, you think you're tempted all by yourself, he knows your temptation. He knows your weakness. He knows that you're dust. Hebrews 4:14 4, to 15 says since then we have a great since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the son of God let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You can't hide from him. You can't hide from him. Because not only is he all-knowing God, he's also a human being. He knows every bit of your ugliness. But get this. Jesus wasn't just, wasn't merely a representative of us. He didn't merely know us. No, the fact that he was the propitiation for our sins meant it went further. It meant that he was also our substitute. Which is extremely important for several reasons. One of which is the fact that after knowing every single thing there is to know about you from the inside out, Jesus still went to the cross in your place. He knows you perfectly and he still hung there absorbing God's wrath for you to be fully known and to still be fully loved. This is what we want. Jesus was under no illusion about who you were, who you are while he hung there taking God's wrath on himself. He knew you perfect as you are right now this second. As has been said many times, Jesus doesn't love some future version of you. He loves you. You can't hide from him. He died for you while you were his enemy. He went to the cross for you. He willingly gave his life for you. Jesus knows you perfectly. And Jesus loves you completely. Please understand this. This is true freedom. This is the path of life. This is the only path place a human being can find rest for their souls. This is why Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. Despite the fact that everything about life gets harder when you come to Jesus. Because of this. Alright, so we've seen that every human heart longs for love. And that God's love for humanity is demonstrated through the incarnation of Jesus. We've seen that Jesus entered into our mess, pain, and brokenness by taking human weakness on himself. And we saw the fact that Jesus was a propitiation for our sins means that he knows us perfectly. And he went to the cross for us anyways. He was a representative and a substitute. We know that his love is predicated on who he is and not who we are. Now these are nice ideas. They're nice ideas. We like them. But these are not. This information, this, these truths from God's word are, were never meant to just stay in our heads. They're meant to change our lives. They're meant to affect what we actually do as we walk out of this theater. As we live the lives God's given us. See, the incarnation was never meant to be just a one-time event. Yes, Jesus was the, way that, was the way that God most fully made his love and himself known to humanity, a very unique way, absolutely. But the incarn- incarnation continues today. Any one of us who's in Jesus, you have the same spirit in you that raised him from the dead. You today are God's ambassador. You are the means through which God wants to demonstrate and show his love to the world. In that sense, the incarnation continues in all of us who are in Jesus. Listen, the world around us, they're dying. They're hungry. They're starving for love. The love which can only be found here. Everywhere else they're pursuing it is destroying them. 
This is meant to change us. This is the purpose of our lives. We are now the conduit that God wants to use to demonstrate his love to the world that's dying all around us. There are two kinds of appropriate responses this morning to what we've heard. And I want to encourage you and challenge you as best as I can to pick one of them. For those here who aren't in Jesus, you're not a Christian, you haven't yet placed your faith in him, you need to respond to God's love to you this morning. You need to find the fullness of all that you're looking for in him. In Jesus is a love that can never and will never be taken from you. One you never have to work for, but only ever have to rest in. You were created for him. Listen, you need to repent of trying to find life in yourself and in other things. You need to turn to the person and work of Jesus instead. For those of us here who are in Jesus already, sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters, every one of us needs to repent of all the ways we've been trying to fill the longings of our heart outside of Jesus in a world around us, around us that's dying. I mean, think of the scandal that it is for Christians who have the key, the source of life, the longings of their heart filled in Jesus for us to play around, for us to flirt with the things of this world that other people look to for life. What are we saying to them? We have to turn our eyes back on Jesus and repent of our own idols. Where are you finding your identity outside of Jesus? Where are you finding your satisfaction, your joy outside of Jesus? Where are you putting your purpose of life other than in Jesus? You need to repent. This is no game. His love for you is that strong. The price paid for you is that great. And listen, as we confess our sin like this, as we repent, as brothers and sisters, and I need to do this as much as you. And as we do this, the love of God begins to flow out of our lives. It just begins to seep out of us and into the people around us. And by God's grace, he will save many, many more through us. But let's turn our eyes back on him. Let's pray for each other in this too. Your life isn't, isn't to be used for any other work. In everything you do, in everything you give your strength to, whatever that is, whatever that is, make sure you're responding appropriately in a way that's pleasing to God because of his incomprehensible love displayed in the life, in the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's my plea to you today. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your great, incomprehensible, unfathomable love, God. A love that we don't deserve, a love that we can't earn, a love that every one of us would walk away from had you not reached into our lives, God, and given us new eyes and a new heart and called us. Thank you. Lord, I know, I know my sin as the psalmist says, in the transgressions, my transgressions are ever before me, God. But Lord, we know that you have wiped our slates clean. And I pray today for every one of those here who are your sons and daughters, I pray, God, that you will cleanse us and allow us, empower us to walk in light of your spirit 
and in light of your love for us in Jesus. Again, Father, I pray for those here who don't yet know you. Would you draw them? Would you save them? Would you let them rest in you? No, we just want to see our city changed. So please help us, God. We pray all this for your glory and in your name, Jesus. Amen.